0: We live in a world where there are promises all around us. And so many of the choices we make in life revolve around the promises we believe. Think about it. If there's a concert that you wouldn't go to by yourself, but your friend promises that they'll meet you there, then you'll plan to go to the concert based on their promise. Or if there's an outfit you're wanting to buy, but you're not so sure that it really complements your figure and your partner promises you that it does not make you look fat, then... You'll probably go and buy that outfit and wear it out with confidence. It feels pretty great when promises are kept and when we see things turn out how we expect them to, but we can also be hurt deeply when people break their promises, like showing up to the concert and your friend bails on you and you're left all alone. Can you remember a time when someone broke a promise to you? There's not only explicit promises that people make, but there are also unspoken promises that the world makes to us. One example is seeing how happy people are when they get promotions at work or buy new vehicles or go on fancy vacations all the time. They don't even need to say anything. The world promises us that if we live more for ourselves, then we will be happier and life will be better. It's so easy to believe this promise and begin to long for things we don't have or overextend ourselves trying to get things that we don't actually need. So we need to ask ourselves, what promises are we believing? And what promises can we trust? The promises that we believe will powerfully shape how we make decisions and what we expect from life. The scripture passage that was read earlier from Genesis chapter three speaks to the reality and importance of promises. There are three found in this passage that I want us to look at as they are some of the most profound and consequential promises in all of history. These promises are important because they represent choices that lead to life and choices that lead to death. The first two promises that we'll look at are the promises that the serpent and the world made, and they are promises that lead to death. The last promise is made by God, and it leads to life. So let's check out the first promise. It comes out of the dialogue between Eve and the serpent in the first five verses of this chapter. This is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, First off, let's quickly clarify this whole talking snake ordeal. In the ancient Near Eastern context that this book was written, snakes were used symbolically in stories to represent different things depending on the culture and religious views of the people writing. For the Hebrews that wrote this passage, the snake represented the Satan, basically the anti-God figure in the Old Testament, who's known as the devil in the New Testament. We see the anti-God nature of the serpent in verse 1, as his first question is to provoke what could be a harmless theological conversation. He asks Eve, did God really say... Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament theologian, comments that the serpent twists what could have been a harmless conversation to try and focus Eve's attention on the one prohibition that God gave, rather than focusing on his abundant provisions in every other area. Have you ever fallen victim to that? focusing on what you don't have or what God says not to do rather than being grateful for the many blessings and freedoms that we've already received. I only struggle with that like every day. Now, there's a lot of young Christians who are leaving the church in this generation because of that exact same lie that the serpent spoke ages ago. There's a growing movement of deconstructionist thinking among Christian millennials and Gen Zs Deconstruction basically meaning they're looking to pull apart the Christian faith and determine what they believe is valid or invalid. It's sort of an emotionally charged intellectual rebellion against the failings of the church. Now, there's definitely some credibility with faith, with the thinking behind this movement. And there are people in the church who need to repent over things like systemic racism, suppressing women, ignoring the marginalized, creating subcultures based on religious moralism and dividing over political movements rather than uniting under King Jesus, just to name a few. And even as I say that, I'm sure some of you are nodding your heads thinking right on Jordan down with the patriarchy. And I agree, those things need to die. But we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that Satan isn't behind a lot of the deconstruction that's causing people to give up on the bride of Christ, not to mention Christ himself. Satan jumps on issues like the ones I just raised and slips in there with his slithering snake tongue, did God really say? We shout, racism is bad. The serpent says, yes, and did God really say that you need to support church leaders when they're a part of the problem? We shout, suppressing women is wrong. The serpent says, yes, and did God really say that women still need to value modesty and humility when the culture is changing so much? We shout, giving money to the church building is a waste. And the serpent says, yes, and did God really say that you need to be a part of an established church anyways? I hope you can see the profoundly complex social, intellectual, and moral realms of each situation. Not to mention that Satan weaves his crafty lies in there to ultimately lead you away from the love and truth of God one frustrated step at a time. He gets us to focus only on the negative things that the church has contributed to these issues and causes us to overlook the many good things that God has done through the church in all of these complex issues. So I ask you, are you really ready to give up on the bride of Christ? Or do you just need to vent your frustrations and talk about these things so that you can love the church again? I encourage you young people to not be so focused on the prohibitions of the Bible or the failings of imperfect people in the church to the point that you reject God's truth and abandon his bride. Be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater in the endless deconstruction that many intellectual Christians are attempting to do. I love these people but I would not be surprised if they are more influenced by Satan than the spirit in the ways that they're attempting to pull apart the church and the Christian faith right now. I exhort you to be discerning. Don't just wholesale buy into the overwhelming emotionalism of every social justice trend. Watch out for the voice of the serpent, getting you to focus on the negative and miss the good works that God is doing through the church every single day all around the world. In verses four and five, the serpent blatantly refutes God's promise and makes his own promise to Eve. He says, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, going on in verse five, for God knows that when you eat from the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The first promise that the serpent makes is basically God can't be trusted. That's the promise that leads to death. God can't be trusted. How often do we feel like that? We read the Bible or hear a pastor or a teacher talk about the Christian worldview and we think, I don't like that. I think my way's better. This is a very tempting promise for us to believe because ultimately we want to be in control of our lives. And we want to determine what's right and wrong for ourselves based on our own experience and desires. Deep down, we want to be like God. We want to be in control. We want to call the shots. We see the world our own way. And when God says, don't do that, it's going to hurt you and hurt others. We respond by saying, I disagree with you, God. I think it's a good choice for me. So what was the result of believing this promise? It says in Genesis chapter three, verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it, you were taken for dust. You are and to dust, you will return. When we chose to follow our own ways to disobey God and say that our ways are better. It resulted in bringing death and the oppression of the evil one into the world and human experience. We don't have to look far before we realize that the beautiful, wonderful world that God created has been pretty messed up all throughout history. So how did we get here? It's through believing the promise that God can't be trusted, that our ways are better than God's ways. Humanity has chosen to do what's right in our own eyes, and our circumstances reflect that. If you take time to read the Bible and look at the truth claims, ethics, and the ways of life that it presents, you can't help but agree, if everyone lived this way, the world would be perfect. If everyone trusted God and willingly gave up their own desires that go against God's ways, then the world would be as it's meant to. You might be thinking at this point, okay, Jordan, if following God's ways are the best, and all we need to do is trust him and do what he says, then why are all the people who claim to follow God's ways still messed up and continue to cause damage all around the world? It's a great question. And God has continued to make his ways and truth known throughout history and called his people to follow those ways. But I guess we aren't doing a great job of that now, are we? So what's the solution? It can't be to try harder. It can't be to do better because every time we've attempted to do that, we consistently fall back to doing the things that we know are wrong. We consistently revert back to believing the promise that our ways are better than God's. Clearly, trying to follow God's ways in our own strength is not working for us. Fortunately, there is a great solution, which we will come to a bit later, but there's one more promise that I want us to look at before we get there. And that is the promise that the world offers us. And it's found in Genesis chapter three, verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The second promise that leads to death is that you need things that only the world can give you. There's so many things in life and the world that are attractive and appealing to us, and it's promised to us that they're good. In the case of Eve, she was drawn to the forbidden fruit because the physical attractiveness of it. It had the ability to satisfy her desires, enlighten her, and increase her knowledge and understanding of how things actually are. The fruit she was looking at was seductive and promised that her life would be better if she chose it over God's ways. This is pretty wild if you think about it, because she knew that God had already given her and her husband everything they needed for a perfect life. God said in Genesis chapter one, verse 29, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. So why would she ever choose something that she knew was wrong? that God clearly said would hurt her and her husband when they were already given everything they needed. Maybe a better question is, why do we continue to do the same things today? There are so many things that we know are wrong. We know are destructive. We know will hurt ourselves and the people around us, but the world promises us that we need them and we end up doing them because we feel that they will satisfy us in ways that God never could. We spend all our money on ourselves rather than investing in the church and advancing God's kingdom because we think God can't give us the same amount of joy as all of the things that we can buy. We watch porn or sexually gratify ourselves with people outside of marriage because we think God can't satisfy all our sexual longings or he hasn't given us the perfect spouse yet that we think we need. Another thing we do is gossip and spread rumors about our classmates or coworkers who are mean to us because we think God's not going to do anything about it. So we think we need to take vengeance into our own hands. The crazy part is that God has already promised us that he will take care of all of those things that I just mentioned. What's our problem then? Our problem is that we see the instant gratification that the forbidden fruit of this world offers us. So we take it into our own hands because it seems like it will give us the things that we are tired of waiting on God for. What are you getting tired of waiting on God for? I remember when I was a new believer, I had just come to faith through experiencing a powerful, miraculous encounter with the presence of God. And I just assumed that every time I went to seek God in prayer or reading the Bible, that I would be overwhelmed by his presence, just like when I first met him. Not to mention, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I assumed God would always be there, just like the first time. Well, during those days, I was still getting over substance abuse, and I figured that God wasn't really showing up on my timelines, so I thought maybe if I smoked some weed before reading the Bible and praying, it would help me experience God's presence just like the first time I met Him. So I would go out behind my parents' house at the time, I would smoke a joint, and sneakily run inside to the bathroom, wash my hands and then sneak into my room and put on cologne to try and hide the weed smell from my parents. Sorry, mom and dad. Once I successfully hid my illegal drug use, I would start to read the Bible and wait to experience God's presence again. It's safe to say that I did not feel God's presence. Instead, I just felt hungry and felt like watching funny TV shows and YouTube, and I would end up napping. I was getting tired, though, of waiting on God to feel his presence again. And the forbidden fruit of the world said it could get me to feel God quicker. Since those days, thankfully, God has shown up powerfully in my life on many occasions in his own perfect timing without any drugs needed. It's a pretty hilarious example. But if we're honest with ourselves... Are you taking shortcuts and going to the world to get things that you should be waiting on God for? So what was the result of Adam and Eve believing the world could give them things that God couldn't? Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When we choose the forbidden fruit and believe the empty promises of this world, it results in shame and us hiding from God. There have been many times where people, both Christians and people of other worldviews, have felt guilty about a choice that they made and felt they needed to confess it to me. My heart always breaks when I see how much shame people are carrying. Beyond that, when I've pointed them to Jesus, a lot of them shut down the conversation as if their soul is running from God, hiding from his presence out of fear that all of the other bad things that they've done might be exposed. John chapter three, verse 20 says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Sadly, most people choose to remain in darkness, to remain in the shame and fear that result from believing the promise that the ways of this world are better than God's ways. Choosing to believe the promises of the serpent and the world ultimately leads to death. Not only the physical death that all creation faces, but also the death of societies, the death of relationships, the death of conscience, and the death of God's presence in our lives. But thanks be to God that his love is far stronger than any of our bad decisions and that he was not willing to leave us in our death. If we read on in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve's fateful choice to be disobedient to God and bring evil and death into the world, God makes a beautiful statement. Even though humanity has rejected him, he promises to eventually destroy the power of death, evil, and our disobedience that separated us from God. It's a promise that ultimately ends up in God making eternal life available for all, a life that no one can take away from us. God's promise that leads to life is found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, "'cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. "'You will crawl on your belly "'and you will eat dust all the days of your life. "'And I will put enmity between you and the woman, "'between your offspring and hers.'" He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The promise that leads to life is that God will destroy death, evil, and our disobedience and gives us eternal life with himself. In this passage, we see the first mention of the promise that was fulfilled in Easter. In essence, this is the first promise of the gospel, the good news of Jesus foreshadowed. The serpent did what he could to bring death to Adam and Eve. He clearly didn't have the power to overwhelm God. So instead, he sought to hurt God in the greatest way by turning God's beloved image bearers against God and getting them to believe a promise that led to death. And that's still what the enemy tries to do to this very day. As a result of his deceptive behavior, God cursed the serpent, who is Satan. God says that the serpent will be brought to humiliation. God also says that there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman, their offspring, and her offspring will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. What does this mean? It probably doesn't mean that women will have a weird hatred for snakes, Although most of the women in my life definitely freak out when they see snakes and want me to kill them, but this statement is far more profound than that. It means that the woman's unhealthy affection towards the serpent's deceitfulness will be miraculously changed to a righteous desire for God himself. It also refers to the woman's offspring having enmity with the snake's offspring in a twofold sense. First, the woman's offspring, which represents the people of God, will have strife and conflict with Satan's offspring, which represents all people who have been led astray by Satan's lies and live in ways that defy God and oppose his people. And we can see this happening all throughout history and all around the world today. God's people are constantly being oppressed by people who deny God. Secondly, the statement about the woman's offspring crushing the serpent's head and the serpent striking his heel refers to a specific singular offspring. Ultimately, it's alluding to the future reality that the power Satan has on this earth will be defeated by someone born from a woman, and there will be suffering and painful conflict involved in the battle between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. That being said, The damage that is done to the woman's offspring is only temporary, the striking of the heel, while the damage done to the serpent is a fatal blow, the crushing of its head. When we fast forward thousands of years later, we come to the person of Christ Jesus walking on the earth. He was a man born of a woman, yet he is also the son of God, the eternal God himself, He's the offspring of the woman who ultimately came to earth so that he could defeat death and the serpent once and for all. When we read the gospel stories of Jesus, we see the promise that God made in Genesis chapter three, verses 14 and 15, come to pass with perfect accuracy. Jesus came so that all of humanity could be liberated from the oppressive powers of death, the devil, and being forgiven for our disobedience. But when he came, he did the completely unexpected. Everyone who knew Jesus and was convinced he was the one who would set God's people free would have never thought that it would result in him dying at a young age. It seemed like Jesus was just getting started in his earthly ministry when his life was tragically ended. All of the people who knew Jesus had great expectations that he would overthrow oppressive governments, and set God's people free from the evil nation that had taken over their land. No one could have imagined that when Jesus was seemingly at his weakest, hanging, tortured on a Roman cross, that he was actually doing his most powerful work. None of God's people who watched Jesus dying on the cross were expecting that his death would result in the defeat of the devil and the chance for all to be delivered from death. Yet, as Jesus hung there, suffering, mutilated, and dying, it was this exact moment where we see Genesis 3, 14 to 15 playing out. Jesus' heel was stricken by the serpent. It looked like he had received the fatal blow, that his life was ended and the serpent had prevailed but we serve a God who cannot be defeated. Jesus promised that he was the son of God. He promised that he would bring salvation to the world. And he was not about to break any of his promises. Jesus came as our hero our savior, the one who crushed the head of the enemy through the cross. Even though the enemy struck the heel of Jesus, bringing his earthly body to death on the cross, Jesus rose from the dead three days later, triumphing over all the powers of evil and darkness in the world. This is the greatest promise ever made, the greatest promise ever kept, and the only promise we can place our entire hope in. So let's take time to ask ourselves, what are the promises we are believing? If we look back at the earliest followers of Jesus, the ones who were with Jesus during his three-year-long earthly ministry and witnessed him both being put to death on the cross and resurrecting from the dead, we can see that the promise they believed caused them to live differently. After Jesus rose from the dead, he revealed himself to a number of his followers before he ultimately ascended into heaven to be with God the Father. Upon his ascension, Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit and eventually return to restore all things. The disciples believed this and lived with a promise that made them incredibly bold. A while after Jesus had ascended and sent the Holy Spirit, Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest friends and followers, were brought before the Jewish religious leaders of their day to be interrogated. As Peter and John stood before the religious leaders, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke boldly about the way of Jesus. After Peter finished his short message, it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The promise that Peter and John believed allowed for these ordinary men to partner with God's supernatural power and be used in extraordinary ways. The promise of God is not only a future promise that we will be with God for eternity when we die. As great and hopeful of a promise as that is, it also has tremendous value for the present. Because God has defeated death, the devil, and our disobedience, we are emboldened to live differently today. We are filled with God's Holy Spirit to make a difference in the world around us right now. We are free from fear, Filled with love, empowered to serve, and called to lead others to Jesus every single day. That is what believing the right promise opens us up to. It opens us up to being united with God and with one another. It's the Easter season where we are reminded of what Jesus did for us. The many things he accomplished through his life, death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, and ascension to heaven. God fulfilled the promise that he made ages ago in Genesis chapter 3 and invites all of us to live in the blessing of the abundant and eternal life that God has provided for us. God proved that he keeps his promises and they all lead to life. He's also proved that the world and the enemy can't keep their promises and they lead to death. What promises are you believing? If you have not yet chosen to receive the promise of God, To trust that His ways are the best ways and commit to following them and to receive the gift of abundant and eternal life, but would like to do so, please pray with me. Dear God, I thank you that you are a promise keeper. I thank you that you have given your own life so that I could receive life. God, I give you my life. I believe that your ways are the best ways. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, That is incredible, and you have just begun the most amazing journey you could ever dream of. And I would encourage you, if you have any Christian friends, please let them know so that they can journey with you and walk alongside you. And if there's no one that you know that are Christians, kind of like me when I first became a Christian, then feel free to reach out. You can reach out to myself or any of our church pastors or staff members, and we would love to connect with you. With that being said, i just love to pray a prayer over the rest of our church family and all of those tuning in that we could be blessed and filled with God's strength and power as we follow his promises instead of the world and the enemy. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your promises are all true, that every promise finds its yes and amen through Jesus. So God, would we be a people who live under your promise? Would we be a people who are empowered and encouraged by the promises that you've made? And as a result, God, we can live a spirit-filled life that makes a difference for all of eternity. God, I pray for your wisdom and discernment when the slithering snake tongue of the enemy tries to confuse us and discourage us and distract us. When he tries to question us deeply and say, did God really say so that we focus on the negative and miss all the great things that you're doing. God, I just pray against those lies of the enemy right now in Jesus' name. And God, for anyone watching this who has bought into those lies and feeling the weight of discouragement and feeling like they're kind of on the fence about whether they wanna be a part of the church or not, whether they even wanna continue following you, Jesus, or not, I just pray, God, for you to break through into that moment and reveal your light and your love and your truth and to set those people free from the lies of the serpent and the lies of the world. God, would you put us all back on your pathway under your promises that lead to life so we can enjoy and live into the abundant life we have right now and expectantly wait for the eternal life, God, that we have with you forever pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.